everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Welcome to this week's Times Will Tell, when we speak about all things Passover related, the spring holiday that begins Friday night, April 15th. I'm speaking today with two Jerusalem-based teachers who have spent a lot of time studying the Haggadah, the Jewish text read during the Passover Seder. We'll first hear from Rachel Sharansky Danziger, a teacher and blogger, and daughter of Natan Sharansky, the Soviet dissident whose battle for freedom formed the very background of his daughter's life, and was formative for so many of us as well. Then we'll speak with Sarah Yehudit Schneider, a teacher of Hasidic philosophy and Kabbalah whose Haggadah, a small, still voice, just came out. She'll share some of her ideas and concepts for the holiday. Welcome to you, Rachel Sharansky Danziger, my guest on this week's Times Will Tell. Rachel, as we've heard, is a teacher who is also happens to be a blogger for Times of Israel, a very long-time blogger, right, Rachel? Yeah, since 2014. And Rachel has uh, a very personal connection in many ways to the Exodus story. Her parents, Natan and Avital Sharansky, really... Household names for many of us were born in the Soviet Union. Natan spent nine years in a Soviet prison after he was arrested for his political activism in 1977. Avital, meanwhile, led an international campaign to pressure the Soviet regime to release her husband and other Jewish refuseniks. After 12 years apart, Natan was finally released and reunited with Avital in Israel, where Rachel was born. And the story goes on from there in many other directions and... We're very happy to have Rachel Shransky Danziger with us today. Thank you. Why is Rachel speaking uh, on this particular episode about the Haggadah? Because she taught about the Haggadah uh, this week at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. The blurb about Rachel's class says, The Haggadah tells us a story about freedom, but it tells it in fits and starts and strays far from the original narrative in the book of Exodus. Why choose such a disjointed path? How does it affect its readers? And what does any of it have to do with freedom in our time personally and as a nation? And of course, Rachel, I'm reading all of this about you and thinking about what's happening. And I imagine some of what um, is happening in terms of the Russian invasion into Ukraine might have come up in your class uh, that you just taught. What were some of the main thoughts that came out of this class that are coming out of your thinking about the Haggadah this year, this season? So I'll answer you in two stages. I'll say in general, and then I'll focus it for this year in particular. Please. I want to preface it by saying that I always loved the Haggadah. I love storytelling, and the idea of sitting and doing a night of storytelling was very natural to me. But I think I really only started understanding the brilliance of the storytelling style of the Haggadah when my children were old enough for me to try and tell them my parents' story. Because for me, my parents' story is the landscape of my soul. It's how I perceive the world. When I am embarrassed, frustrated, happy, I think in terms that are borrowed from my parents' struggle because I grew up with it and it built me into who I am. And then when the time came to pass the story on to my children, I realized that somehow, instead of becoming the foundation of their perception of the world, it became yet another interesting story somewhere in between Aladdin and a retelling of Frozen. (laughs) And at first, I tried to use everything I knew about storytelling to make the story more interesting for them. I would 
make it more suspenseful. I would introduce more characters, all real characters, friends of my parents, comrades in arms. And I didn't invent anything, but I would draw more relatable characters for them. I would tell them about my parents' childhood since kids relate to kids' experiences. I would uh, sure. highlight the dark moments. I would end on a cliffhanger and then tell them the rest of the story the next day. But the more immersive and interesting I made the story, the more their response would be, yay, now can you tell us about Snow White? Wow. So I turned to the Haggadah to try and see how the Haggadah takes a story that happened such a long time ago, not a generation ago, thousands of years ago, and makes it relevant for all of us as a foundational text, a foundational story that matters to us in our own personal life. And I realized that the way that Haggadah does it is by not following all these best practices and storytelling I tried to imbue into my parents' story. It is not telling us one unified story with a beginning, middle, and an end. To the contrary, it starts and tells us, okay, you know, this is the bread of our privation that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Then suddenly jumps into the present tense and into the first person. We are now slaves. Next year we'll be free. Then it starts asking us questions about how this particular night is different from all nights. Then it finally says, okay, we used to be slaves to Paro, and it's important to tell the story. But instead of telling the story, it starts telling us about other people who told the story. And the roller coaster just goes on and on and on. It just keeps jarring us and making us jump from place to place to place. And I ask myself, why? Why did the rabbis, the sages, when they created the Haggadah, decided to go with this jarring, fragmented, all-over-the-place style? And, and I realized that what they achieved that my more traditional storytelling couldn't achieve is that instead of inviting the reader, the audience, participant to be passive, to kind of surrender to the story and allow yourself to be transported to, I don't know, Hogwarts, Middle Earth, wherever you want to go, and experience something there, they constantly stop us from being immersed and force us to confront where the story meets us. Who are we when we say we were slaves or we are slaves? Who are we when we say... There are five rabbis in Bnei Brak who talked about the Haggadah. Are we their continuation? Are we their critiques? Are we the detectives trying to fit all the pieces together? By constantly jarring us out of immersion, it forces us to take the Haggadah story into our own home turf and make it into part of our lives. And once I realized that, once I realized that the jarring, fragmented storytelling style actually makes a story perhaps less transportive, it doesn't transport you elsewhere, but definitely more transformative for me as a reader, for me as a participant. And it empowers me to become the author of the story as it meets me today, right now. Where you are. Where I am right now, exactly. And where I am right now is not the same as I was last year, or where I'll be next year, or as one of the students in the class pointed out, if you keep two seders where you will be in 24 hours. <laughs> so once I realized that, I realized that the Haggadah allows us to taste liberation, not only through the content, the focus on the liberation from Egypt that happened eons and eons ago, but rather also through our experience of the form, where instead of being a captive, passive audience, we become the authors of the narrative on some level. So we experience what it's like to move from a state of passivity to a state of empowerment of authority, of self-determination, much as the Israelites did on the political and physical sense 
in, in the exodus, in the moment of Yetziat and Tzayim, of coming out of Egypt. Knowing this now, understanding this about the exodus story, and knowing what you wanted your kids to gain from your family history and your parents' story and experience, what does it mean in terms of your actual telling of the story when you, when you all sit around the table on Seder night? It means that I make a conscious effort to repress the desire to offer my kids a polished, edited, exciting story. And instead, entrusting them with bits and pieces that match their questions and their interests and where they are, and trusting them to use them as building blocks for the story they're creating in their mind. It's easier to do with a Pesach story than with my parents' story, because my parents' story is so personal and so important to who I am. But exactly because it's difficult, I think there's power to releasing it. And in a sense, you know, people march all around the world saying, let my people go for my parents and their friends and their fellow Jews behind the Iron Wall. I need to let the story go. I need to allow the story to become what my children want to make it and not force my interpretation on them. And what goes for my personal family story in my own personal family context, I think, goes for the national story also. Here we are in the land of Israel coming from many different places and many different perspectives. And the urge to try and force one narrative and one understanding of what our tradition means on everybody else is definitely there because we all care about this narrative very deeply. But perhaps the more empowering and liberated way to do it, the both liberating and liberated way, and perhaps definitely the one that will result in a more interesting and robust society is to let go and to tell our bits and pieces without this imaginary power to be the editor of it all. Right. Something that takes a lot of control in a sense, a personal sense of control to to do that and to not jump in there and uh, generalize, right? I mean, that's, that's what it, sometimes what it comes down to. So going back to that original question and your own personal story and your fa- that of your family and that of your parents, how are you looking at... Th- what is happening right now in the context of your family history and Pesach? It's all related for me because on the most visceral, simple level, it's bizarre to look at history right now and see that the boogeyman of your childhood, you know, Russia as the villain, is suddenly rearing up again. And for so much of my life, my sense of self and history was My parents won. My parents' generation won this war. And I'm stuck with, you know, the details that come after the great war is won. And you have to worry about the prices of cottage and changing your children's diaper. And a lot of my growth as a person was overcoming a certain sense of bitterness about it, about how I felt. that they were these great heroes. And here we are left with, you know, the daily life that comes after. But Apparently, I was actually quite happy with being stuck with a daily life because now that the war is on again and that the free world is in danger, not just Ukraine itself which and what's happening there, the pictures we're seeing these days are heartbreaking and unbelievable and I can't put them into words, but the entire world order that puts limits on the ability of a ruling class or a ruler to oppress their own citizens and pursue an imperialistic agenda towards their neighbors is in danger right now. And this was the world order my parents and their comrades-in-arms fought against. It wasn't just Stalin or Brezhnev or Andropov. It was this way of looking at the world 
that says, if I have the power, then I will take it. Why not? There's nothing beyond my power to stop me. There's nothing beyond the limits to my power to stop me. And this is the truth of where we should stand in this war, on the, the, the war for the soul of the world, of the free world as we live it, is, was definitely given to me by my parents and their commitment to freedom, not just for Jews, but in general in the Soviet Union. And it's very deeply rooted in the Haggadah and in the story of the Exodus, even prior to the formation of the Haggadah, the story that shines through all these fragments and bits and pieces that are rearranged there by the sages. It's that thread that keeps on going through Exactly, it. because from the beginning, the story of the Exodus was not just the story of God taking a people from amongst another people and leaving. If that was a story, he could have done it like this, you know, with a knocking his knuckles in a second. Why do you need all those plagues? Why do you need all this process? God says it himself in the book of Exodus. He says, to show to the Egyptians that I am God. In other words, to show that there's absolute good and bad, good and evil, values of good and evil that are not tied to what your king says is good and evil or what good and evil is, what is good for your state, what is good for your system. No. When Paro throws the babies in the rivers, it might make real politics sense. And today, some pund- if it was today, maybe some pundits would say, well, yeah, of course it's atrocious and immoral, but you, you have to understand within the context of political reality, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. But there's no question in the story of Exodus that this is evil, plain and simple. And I wish we could carry some of that clarity into the way we view the world around us today. Right. So as a closing thought then, as you, as you think about all of this and you head toward the Seder that we're all heading toward, what kind of message? I mean, obviously there's the message of we don't want this to be happening and we want to find our way out of it. I don't know. Is there another message that we can look for in the Haggadah this year? Something else that gives us the strength and wherewithal to keep on pushing forward? This year, and you might find it odd that this passage of all passages speaks to me this year because it's so not relevant in many ways. I actually find a lot of meaning in that story about the five rabbis in Bnei Brak who are sitting and learning all night until their students tell them, oh, it's time for the morning and Kriyat Shema Shacharit, to read the Shema in the morning. Because while the story is somewhat esoteric and definitely appears at an odd and surprising point in the story in a way that evokes thought and awakens us to ask questions. Fragmented, as you, as you point out. Exactly. It also means that what we do when we pass the story of the Agada is part of a long tradition. It puts us in the chain of generations. And when we start looking into the context of that moment when the five rabbis meet, it's clear that it's in the years leading to merit and there's a long tradition interpretation that really what they were doing is not discussing Pesach. What they were discussing was the plans for the rebellion. Of Bar Kochva. Exactly. Mm. And the students were outside to make sure nobody who shouldn't be there would come. And whether you want to take this tradition literally and say, yes, that's exactly what they're doing, or just take it with a grain of salt and say, okay, maybe they're not discussing the rebellion, but it's definitely in the air because we know that these are the rabbis whose lives are about to be intertwined with this moment of national uprising, what it tells me is that thousands of years ago, 
a group of great men sat in Passover and wasn't only thinking about it as an ancient story. They were thinking about it as an open question regarding what's the right thing to do in their moment in time. And when I uh, see myself as part of that chain, as part of that uh, tradition, I see that I cannot sit in Passover and think about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. I have to think about Yitzhak Mitzrayim and what it means that I should be doing today, too. That's a message that we'll take and pass on. Rachel Sharansky-Danziger, thank you very much for being on this episode of Times Will Tell. Wishing you and yours a happy, safe, healthy Pesach Passover this year. Amen. May we see liberation before our eyes in our time. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Hi, Times Will Tell listeners. I'm speaking with Sarah Yehudit Schneider, a Jerusalem-based teacher of Hasidut and Kabbalah, and the founding director of A Still Small Voice, her correspondence school with weekly teachings in classic Jewish wisdom to subscribers worldwide. She does a lot of other things. That's just honing it down to one sentence of description. Sari Hudit Schneider is the author of the recently published Haggadah, The Small Still Voice Passover Haggadah, a work that I believe has taken some 30 years to fully complete. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct. A very careful completion, I'm assuming. So here, let, let me give you a chance to say hello and tell us a little bit about the work process of this Haggadah, which we spoke about, but I'd love to for you to tell our listeners. Okay. So hello. Hello. Hello, everyone. So yes, so I just am publishing this year a Haggadah that I've been working on for for 30 years, maybe even 35. Just every year when Nissan comes around, I would start reading the Haggadah again and preparing for the Seder and um, and taking whatever, pulling whatever teachings I happen to notice in that round of reading into um, recording them and just building up the content of the commentary on the Haggadah. So, um, so after 30 years, it felt like more or less I had covered most of the, the major chunks and, um, and it was ready to come out into the world. So with right, so I'm curious what made you you said the major chunks, but what made you finally say, okay, 
We've got this. I could put this out in the world. Uh Right, right. Well, there are the 15 stages of the Seder, and I had something, I hope, interesting to say about each of them. And then also within the Magi, there are 15 substages of, um, as the narrative flows through, sometimes it seems like very awkward transitions, but basically there are 15 major chunks within Magid, and I also, you know, had something to say about each one of them, which I hope will be interesting to people. And, um, and so it seemed like, you know, it was ready to fly. The time had come, right? Yeah. So I read over some of the, uh, the earlier parts of the Haggadah that you sent to me. And uh, one of the things that we thought we would talk about is you write about the Seder revolving around matzah, as a center of attraction and meditative focus, which was kind of a new concept for me. So I'd first love, for, I, I picked out a few a few bits and pieces that really spoke to me, but can you give a general explanation about what you mean by that? Okay, so well, there are really kind of three global progressions that happen through the Seder, at least as um, that I identified, which um, one of them is, as I said, the 15 stages of the Seder itself, which is the, the process or progression of, um, of our birth, exile, and redemption, uh, both collectively and individually. And then there's the progression of our relationship, our developing relationship with the matzah and the, the, the series of projections that we um, impose upon the matzah, so to speak. And that really is um, a, a development from katnut, from immature, childish, narrow-minded consciousness into godlut, mature, wise, broad-minded consciousness that is um, a process that we ideally go through in the course of our Seder. And then there is also the progression of the, the four plus one cups of wine that, um, that are a progression of deepening relationship with Hashem and the simcha, the joy that comes from each step along that path. So, um, so the matzah one is um, like the Seder really revolves around the matzah and the Talmud actually says the Amar Shmuel lechem ani lechem sha'onim alav devarim harbe that the lechem oni which we usually translate as the bread of affliction but the Talmud understands it here as the bread sha'onim that we have a lot to say about during the course of the Seder, that we speak a lot of words over the matzah. And so in that sense, matzah becomes in the Seder uh, a kind of meditative focus. If we define meditation as a continuous flow of thought on a particular object or point of focus, then, um, then we're actually meditating on matzah. What is meditation? You've picked something as a focus, your mind wanders and you come back. It wanders and you come back. And each time you come back, you come back into a deeper place and into a slightly different place. And so 
the matzah as our kind of center of attraction, of the Seder's center of attraction, becomes a kind of meditative focus. And there are um, like nine different associations that we attribute to the matzah in the course of our in the course of the evening. You're speaking about this, and I'm thinking about someone very dear to me and close to me, who I will not say who that is, <laughs> who uh, who often complains about matzah as a food item and what it can do to one's digestive system if you eat too much of it. And of course, this this obviously elevates it to such a different place and puts it in in a very different focus, which is your intention, which is something that clearly one needs to do over the course of this eight-day holiday and preparing for it. You also wrote about matzah as, I really like this, as a medicinal bread, a soul food. You write that it's a remedy that penetrates to the depths of the soul and heals primal wounds, Right. which I have to be honest, is not it was not the way I, I ever thought about matzah, and I I welcome thinking about it differently. Could you talk explain a little bit about that, what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that's really, I must say, it's my favorite teaching about Pesach and the Seder and matzah and everything. It's it's actually a teaching by Rav Tzadokha Kohen, where he talks about, first of all, kind of the background is that he talks about the first sin, so to speak, which was an act of unrectified eating. Not, says he, that we ate something that shouldn't have been eaten, but that it was the um, the intention that we brought to eating, the pleasure grabbing, so to speak, intention behind that eating that was the problem and the flaw and the sin, really. And so he talks about how there are 613 mitzvot, which correspond to the 613 organs of body and soul. And a mitzvah is is an exceptionally powerful act that brings light and fixing and healing to some particular organ of body and soul. And often the mitzvah associates with that part of us that is active in the performance of that mitzvah. And so Rav Tzadik notes that you know, because this, um, the, the first sin was an act of unrectified eating. So, um, and that the, the Talmud teaches that Adam spanned from heaven to earth and one end of the world to the other, that, that Ad, this archetypal Adam contained the souls of all humanity within him, her, it. And so, if that be so, then we all participated in that decision to eat, and we all suffered the shattering consequences of it. And so we all have a fracture deep in our soul inherited from that primordial time, which means that we all have an eating disorder, um, a, a, a dysfunction in the way we take pleasure from the world. And so, and this, according to Rab Sadok, this ancient soul wound is the cause behind the cause behind the cause of all neuroses, personality imbalances, existential dissatisfactions of everything that's not working in our lives and in the world. Every imperfection and corruption devolves from there. And so then what's it saying? That eating the matzah then does what? Yeah, so that's so the Pesach Seder is the only time of the year 
where three acts of eating are actually commanded as a religious obligation, where it's the only time that we say a share kedushanubamitzvosav over an act of eating, which makes these special Pesach mitzvot, the Korban Pesach we don't do anymore, so there's really only the matzah and the maror. But so it makes these special Pesach mitzvot our only opportunity to bring light and fixing and healing to that deepest crack in our soul, into that fissure, really, that was caused by our unrectified eating. And so on Pesach, and only on Pesach, the gates, says Ramsada, the gates are open for us, for us to metaphorically rub some salve directly onto that ancient wound. Most of the time, we're working with its secondary expressions, the distorted thoughts and wrong actions that it instigates. But on Seder night, when eating becomes a full-fledged mitzvah, we bring healing lights all the way down to this bedrock fracture that continues to fester because it's, it's, it's not yet healed. We haven't really completed its tikkun. And then, so that's very interesting because I wanted to ask you about this, the final piece in this matzah section, so to speak, or chunk, uh, where you talk about at matzah and and its place as the afikoman, the dessert in the Seder, and matzah is served in essence as the official dessert of a Seder, of the Seder meal. And you write that it becomes a delicacy so sublime that even chocolate mousse <laughs> would be a come down <laughs> from the Pesach Afikoman. And I thought that was so apt because it's, it's you know, we, one thinks of the Seder when all these people gathered around the table and you've had this massive meal and you've probably had more than one dessert. And then the, afik, the, the Afikoman comes around, that little piece of matzah, from the beginning of the meal, now comes around and you eat this little piece of matzah uh, to signify the end of the meal. And you're giving it a very different meaning. The, the rest of us, often in reality, we say, oh, I don't have any more room. I'm done. I'm full. But you say, no, this is the delicacy. This is the ultimate piece of the meal. Is, is that, am I getting that right? Yes, and because it is connected to that, the yachats, the breaking of the matzah that we did at the at the beginning, and you know that symbolizes really the the yachats itself symbolizes the the inevitable fall from grace or disillusionment that propels each cycle of growth. And so the Talmud says, "Ein omdim al divrei Torah ela im that you don't own any piece of wisdom and Torah wisdom unless you first stumble over it. And so the, um, the yachatz represents that the, the stumbling, the fall from grace, and that forces us to grapple with some unwelcomed reality and to find a way to cover our peace in spite of it. And so the, um, and really every growth spurt can be traced back to a symmetry breaking moment. And um, where a breach erupts between our fantasy about how life was supposed to be and our actual life experience. And so the idea of the afikoman is that this, um, this piece of matzah that was kind of disowned and, um, and 
pushed out of sight because it was so it was because it has such unpleasant associations now comes back at the end of the meal at the end of the seder with a treasure trove of lights and consciousness and the sweetness of all that of the growth that we've um gone through that we've accomplished or obtained in the course of our journey and now it's really um a gift the 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 yurida the fall now has produced an alia which is really a gift which is symbolized by the afikomen that we um eat at the end of the meal I'll bet you have a very long stay. Yes, it is true. As a, many, many hours long, I would bet, right? <laughs> you have all, you guys have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I want to touch on one more one more thought from this uh really this treasure trove of a, of a Haggadah that I am looking forward to using at my own Seder. You write about Magid, the telling of the Passover story as a form of narrative therapy. Which wow, that that could lead a lot. That's a lot of food for thought for almost any seder out there. I would I would venture to say every seder gathering out there. Right. I mean, it's interesting to you know, kind of narrative therapy is a respectable and um, and profound therapeutic modality, and there are certain principles that um, have been discovered by practitioners of it. That um, so, I mean, I just I have to say I just pulled this from Wikipedia, but this is what they said that the, <laughs> that the fe- the features of a healthy story of a healthy self narrative are twofold: that its events are linked by themes of fall and redemption, i.e., they flunked sixth grade but met a wonderful counselor and made honor roll in seventh, um, or and second that they report feeling that a person reports feeling singled out from very early in life, protected even. And so the Magi section of our Haggadah is a masterpiece, really, based on those principles. It's a it's a masterpiece of narrative therapy, but even like written millennia before there even was such a notion of, of um, narrative therapy. But the Rabbis explicitly designed the Haggadah to proceed. It says, Meganut l'shevach, from disgrace to distinction. That's how the Talmud describes it. And it certainly presents the Jewish people as singled out for a mission, a special mission. And so when the Dalai Lama was having to deal with the, um, the problems of the exile of his nation, of his people, he, he, um, invited some rabbis and Jewish practitioners to advise him about how to um, survive that test of exile because the Jewish people were our, our masters of that. We've somehow we've managed to survive 2,500 years of exile. So, um, so one of the things that uh, Rav Zalman Shachter um, suggested to the Dalai Lama was that he create a seder, that he create a haggadah and a seder, and and have um, you know families come together once a year and tell their story, and and tell their mission. I don't think the Dalai Lama did it, but um, you know it was an interesting, interesting concept. So I have to ask at your at your seder, will this 
Will everyone have a copy of a small still voice Passover Haggadah? Will there be different kinds of Haggadot on the table? What will happen? Right. I, everyone's going to come with their own Haggadah and pipe up okay. whatever interests them. And uh, yeah, and I'm going to do a lot of talking too. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. At your seder, you there's there's a lot of good things to say here. <laughs> Is anything going to be available on your website But if people want to read a little bit more about it? There's tons of material on the website. Like it, over the course of the years, each chunk of theater, I sent out a teaching about it. And so those teachings are all available. So that's good to note because we could go on for a very long time. There's There's a lot to delve into here. And perhaps we'll have an opportunity another time. But for now... I really just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing some of your teachings and hoping that for our listeners, it's uh, enlightening and adding some ideas of what to think about and how to progress as we head into this holiday. Amen. And thank you for inviting me, really. It was a pleasure to meet you and to be able to share a few words. Same. Pesach Sameach. Yeah, Pesach Sameach. Thanks for joining us for this week's Times Will Tell. We'll continue with our usual schedule of daily briefings throughout Pasifar. Chag Sameach! Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel, and thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.